this South American soccer an in-depth look at the action across the whole continent, providing you with a tactical, analytical and critical view supported by Pinnacle's unrivaled odds. This is South American Soccer Insights. Victoria's final is this week, so we run the rule over our finalists and with seasons wrapping up all over the continent, we give a roundup of what's been going on in the domestic scene before, like so many of those clubs, switching our attentions to the World Cup now less than one month away. As ever, to go through all of this, I'm joined by Simon Edwards. Yeah, no, looking forward to it. Uh, rounding up the leagues and looking ahead to the World Cup should be, should be, should be great, so yeah. Let's go. And Tom Robinson also back with us again. Good evening, everyone. It's uh, nice to nice to speak to you all and about this uh, very exciting time with, you know, so much going on and so much expectation coming up. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, well, we've got a lot to get through as we always try our best to get under an hour. Um, but, of course, we'll start given it's this week. The big one in, in terms of club football in South America this weekend, of course, the Copa Libertadores final. Last time round, we were talking about the Sudamericana final. And now it's the big one. Flamengo taking on Atletico Paranaense for the honour of best club in South America. And all Brazilian clash that perhaps we were expecting, but perhaps not the two clubs that we were expecting. After a semi-final surprise in many ways, Atletico Paranaense knocking out Palmeiras. Um, Tom, I'll come to you first. Then as we look ahead to this game, uh, how do you kind of assess these two teams going into the big final? Well, on the face of it, Flamengo are obviously going to come in as massive favourites, beaten finalists last year, champions in 2019, star-studded squad, and, and certainly, you know, one of the teams that has impressed us throughout this tournament. I mean, I think there's a there's a legitimate claim to say this is, perhaps the best iteration of Flamengo, even better than that side that won in 2019. So all the pressure is going to be on Flamengo. But I think that, you know, as we've we've all always warned about on this podcast, you can't uh, write off Atletico because they've always got, you know, that resolute defense, that that gritty determination big feel in charge sort of grinding out those those wins and i think the fact that it's a one off tie which we've we've obviously seen sides over the last few years be quite cagey rather than the the more enjoyable two legged finals that we've seen in the past i think that's going to play into atletico's hands they've played each other in the copa do brazil it was only 1-0 to flamengo over two legs even though flamengo did thrash them in the league so we know that flamengo on their day can can really turn it on against Atletico. But if you look at their head-to-head records just across their history, it's really, really um, tight. I think it's 23 wins for Flamengo, 13 draws and 23 defeats. And the goals for is 78 for Flamengo and 77 for Atletico. So historically, th- there's not really much to choose between these two sides. And the, the nature of that one-legged, tie on a neutral ground I think that could really play into Atletico's um, into their favour really and and as such even though they're 7.120 for the win and I think there's even though it's unlikely you know it's it's not a bad shout 
Yeah, absolutely. It's something we always need to bear in mind when we have these one-off finals, when one of the teams is given such heavy favourite status as Flamengo have been going into this final. Something to bear in mind, as it was for the Sudamericana when we talked last month and said that there's potentially some good value there with Independiente del Valle. Um, but Simon, sticking on on Flamengo, I mean, Tom laid out there why they're, why they're so dangerous. We've talked throughout this year given how well they've been going throughout this tournament, the threat that they possess, they were able to add to an already formidable squad, the likes of Arturo Vidal coming in. And this season, they've got undeniably the best centre-forward, the the most prolific goal scorer in the tournament in Pedro. Do you look at their individual talents in that team and still think that'll be too much for Atletico Panayense? I mean, that, that's what makes them favourites, obviously, and, and rightfully so, because the quality is there. Um, you know, if you played this game 100 times, you, know, you would expect Flamengo to win most of those games, right? And the, the, the combinations they have with the Escalieta, finding space in the hole and creating with Pedro in such good form, as you mentioned, a lot of midfielders there, like Everton Ribeiro, who can get forward and get back. There's a lot of a lot of flexibility in the way they play now, I think perhaps more so than previously, often going with two forwards and they can switch them around. There's a lot of things that they can do. Um, But, uh, you know, as Tom mentioned, I think this one-off nature of the final is, is very, very important. Um, I think it'll be really interesting to see. I I obviously expect it to be tight. Um, I think uh, an early goal will will change things a lot. I mean, if it does remain tight, then you can see Panamanayense surprising everyone here, you know, because, they got through a semi-final against Palmeiras, which uh, is incredibly impressive because Palmeiras are combined quality with professionalism. I think Flamengo are perhaps a slight step above in terms of quality, but, uh, but to see um, Paranense overcome that Palmeiras side with such organisation, retaining a threat, getting the goals that they needed, um, going down to 10 men in the first leg and still seeing out the result, uh, getting the goals in the second half and the second leg. So... There's a lot of momentum with Paranaense, um, which I think is going to be important. But yeah, you know, Flamengo are favourites for good reason. Um, there's a lot of quality there. Um, it's going to be interesting to see. But you know, uh, I think I think it will be Flamengo who are the protagonists, you could say, in the final. Um, but I think Paranaense will definitely make it an interesting game, a tough game. Uh, and it'll be very, very interesting to see how the game uh, pans out. Yeah, I mean, the semi-final, obviously, being able to beat Palmeiras, who alongside Flamengo, even perhaps more so, given they're coming coming into this after winning the last two editions of the, of the tournament and, and looking as formidable, really, as ever. Um, beating them should serve as a bit of a wake-up, perhaps, for anyone looking at this final and thinking it would be one-sided towards Flamengo. Tom, when you, when you look at Atletico and you look at the fact that they beat Palmeiras, you look at the fact that they kept... Estudiantes in the quarterfinals to two clean sheets, which proved to be decisive in going through 1-0 on aggregate there. Then, as you said in your appraisal of them earlier, being able to dig in and, and show that sort of resolute defending against Palmeiras. Where do you look at Atletico being able to do the damage against Flamengo in this final? Where do you see them potentially winning this? 
Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think as as much as they're a defensively solid side that could really frustrate and draw the pressure from Flamengo, um, they do have a bit more quality than perhaps they've had in previous years. The obvious name to mention is Vitor Roque, the young 17-year-old forward who's he's got that ability to just you know, muscle his way past someone or swivel and shoot and, and get a goal seemingly out of nowhere. But there's also, you know, willing runners in in the likes of Canorio, the Uruguayan. Um, also Terrans as well is, is an underrated player who can, who can do some damage. So th- there's a solid spine and enough quality in the final third to maybe nick the game 1-0, for example. So I think, you know, if you're looking at the... The, the the markets there it's i think it's going to be a low scoring game um you'd fancy flamengo to score and they're 1.127 to, to to get a goal which i think is uh, a, a pretty safe bet but certainly i'd be looking at under 2.5 goals which is uh, 1.862 with with pinnacle and you know if you if you're feeling really brave a 1-0 to atletico is is 16.380 so i think even though the obvious um, the obvious result would be Flamengo winning, um, and and we've seen how they can grind out those cup finals recently when when they beat um, Corinthians on penalties in the Copa do Brasil recently. So they've got practice, recent practice of um, coming up against a really tough, obdurate side that aren't going to give much away. And they've managed to get through that, not necessarily by blowing them away like we'd expect them to. And we've seen them do against the likes of Velez and Tolima in, in, in earlier occasions in the Libertadores. But, you know, if it gets gritty and dirty, they, they can dig in as well. So, I mean, we'd be a fools to look past Flamengo and there's good reason that with uh, Pinnacle, they're 1.478 to win. Um, but, um, you know, you could you could look at that Copa do Brazil in, in two different ways. You say, oh, okay, well, you know, they needed penalties to do it. And, and that's as, as and much of a, a sniff of or a glimmer of hope that Atletico need to say, well, you know what, we've we've edged past the Estudiantes, we've edged past uh, Palmeiras, we've we've edged past uh, Libertad. You know, even in the group stage, they weren't exactly flying. So they're they're going to relish being the underdogs. And even though I don't think we're we're going to be treated to a, an absolute memorable spectacle for, for, for the ages. It's, it's certainly going to be a really intriguing battle and perhaps the, you know, the first final where it's, it's not been maybe two sides really going at it who, 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 who can both lay claim to having a good shout of winning, but much more, you know, underdog versus um, the big, big pretenders. You know, maybe you could say Santos were similar um, a couple of years back, but um, you know, this feels like a yeah, a real contrast of styles and and that in itself is going to be interesting. Yeah, I mean Simon, I think Tom's probably right in that the Atletico will come into this as big underdogs, not just in terms of the odds, but in, in terms of how they'll approach the game. But having seen them edge past teams in the previous rounds, do you think they have what it takes to be able to to stop this Flamengo side. And on paper, when you look at the depth there, and we mentioned a number of the players already that Flamengo boast, both in their regular 11 and even on the bench, do you think they are able 
And would it be the biggest achievement if they were able to keep this side out? And therefore, do you think the opening goal could be all important in this game? Yeah, I think a combination of the opening goal and the use of changes is going to be really important for, for this particular game. Uh, if if Paranense score early, you know that completely shifts the momentum of the game. Suddenly, they're likely to sit back a little bit deeper. They'll have something to defend, but then perhaps they'll draw on Flamengo and give them the additional momentum. Um, I think with this Flamengo side as well, the, the interchanges they have, the fact that they'll get lots of players forward, but they're not forward in a fixed set up a fixed position it's not like this guy's going to stand out on that wing that guy's going to stand on that that wing you know they'll they won't have that temptation to throw too many crosses into the box despite the fact they've got Pedro in there who's you know pretty strong in the air um, I can see this Flamengo side with their Scarietta pulling the strings looking to find some openings find some spaces you know we've seen some Brazilian sides with a lot of quality who have resorted to we've got the ball forward what are we going to do let's just get it in the box over and over again you know, while Flamengo have the quality from fullback pulling up, pushing forward, who want to contribute, I can see some intelligent interplays, you know, with those two forwards and players coming from behind, arriving in the box. I think it's a Flamengo side that is capable and comfortable um, facing uh, a, a defence that sits in, teams get men behind the ball. So I think this is one side that, that doesn't rely on the counter-attack. They, they're capable of doing it, but I think they're well suited and with a lot of experience dealing with um, deep-lying defences. We've seen it in the Libertadores. We've seen them absolutely blow teams away uh, when they when they opposition have set, sat deep. So I think Paranense will need to keep some hope. Now, whether that's a, some counter-attacks that, that, that really upset Flamengo, uh, push them back a little bit. Uh, if it's an early goal, that will be ideal, I think. But it's going to be really interesting how these things develop, you know, because it's a final. Um, and... It can be 60, 70 minutes of nothing happening and then lots of dramas we've seen in previous years. It can be an early goal and then that shifts the whole momentum. So it's going to be fascinating. It's very hard to predict, um, which is great news for anyone looking to make a bet on the game. Um, Obviously, Flamengo will be the the clear favourites. Flamengo have the better team. But there's a bit of momentum with Paranense. They've got through that incredibly difficult semi-final against the team who I personally were backing to win the whole competition, Palmeiras. Um, so they'll come into this knowing that they can face the best in South America um, and they can get the job done. And, and I think the, the nature of the two semifinals is also encouraging because the first one, um, they got the goal, went down to 10 men and held it, up, held it together. And in the second game, they had a man advantage and then used the attacking play to get the two goals they needed. So they've shown that they can get the goals in the high, print, high, high pressure games. They've shown that they can see out a tough, uh, tough fixture when they're up against it. So they'll have reason to be confident um, in their ability to compete. But yeah, as you say, this is definitely an underdog in a final and it'll be fascinating to see because Flamengo have a lot of experience as well. That's also a factor. You know, they're going to come into this with players who have experienced at the highest level international football, big European competitions, big South American competitions. Um, so we'll see if that helps them or if the kind of nothing to lose nature of this for Palmeira, uh, Paranaense will, will be a factor as well. It'd be, be very interesting to see. Yeah, it really will be. Well, just one game remaining in this year's Libertadores, Tom. It's, it's been another year largely dominated by the Brazilian clubs, as we see with, with two in the final. Um, the financial firepower that they have available to them, I guess, makes them favourites. We're now seeing a lot of the Brazilian clubs do a lot more intelligent business and, and, and use that financial advantage to their 
benefit a lot more than they used to. Um, but looking ahead, then, do you see that changing anytime soon, or already when you start looking ahead to like 2023, are you already looking at the Brazilian clubs and thinking it's going to be very, very difficult for anyone outside Brazil to crack that? Yeah, it's they're definitely setting the benchmark at the moment. I mean, obviously Flamengo are doing great. We're even seing, you know, Paranaense get the fact they're getting to a final when you'd put them at the start of the tournament below many other teams um, from from other nations. The fact they even, you know, what would ordinarily be seen as a sort of second tier or mid-ranking Brazilian side able to get to the final now just shows that they've also got strength and depth along with those really, really strong sides. Palmeiras looking very strong in the league, as I'm sure we'll get onto. And, you know, Gremio coming back into the to the league, you know, you've got this constant battle of, of big clubs really having to to sort of fight and and you know the de- like I said the depth and quality is is good good there with with teams going far in the Sudamericana as well you know teams that you wouldn't ordinarily associate but you know I, I think there are reasons to be positive um, you know you you've got Boca who who may be sort of undergoing something of a a youthful revolution and and the likes of Racing you know playing some good football um, obviously. It's going to be interesting to see what River do, but you've also got, you know, IDV um, showing that it's not all about Brazilian success after their Sudamericana triumph. So there's there's a few shoots of uh, of optimism there, but yeah, it's Brazil the, te- the teams to beat at the moment. Yeah. Well, just before we leave that then, Tom, just get your final prediction for the Libertadores. I think it's going to be 1-1 and mm. go to penalties. And that's as, that's as much as I'm going to say. <laughs> There's a little uh, cliffhanger there, on, even on the prediction. Um, and Simon, what do you reckon? Um, I'm going to go 2-0 Flamengo. Playing it safe. Yeah, okay. Basic. So. <laughs> <laughs> One, an early goal for Flamengo. Palencia growing, into, increasingly attacking, and then Flamengo hitting them on the counter, and, and that's it. Job done. It's very specific. So anyway, if you want to uh, put some money down, I hope we've given you a bit of information there and um, hopefully at least tried to give some hope to Atletico Paranaense despite their uh, heavy underdog status in this one. Um, you, you touched on it there, Tom. We'll, we'll move on to the league action around South America because that's all coming to a very rapid end over the next week or so, really, before the World Cup. Um, and as we're talking about those two Brazilian sides will we'll go straight in there and talk about the Brasileirão, um, where we've already talked about this team disappointment for a change in the Libertadores, but it looks as though the, the league will at least provide some consolation. Yeah, they've, they're absolutely romping away with it. They're, I think, 10 points clear of um, Internacional in seconds with, um, I think, what is it, five games to go. So it's going to be Palmeiras' title. And, you know, you've, you've got to tip your hat to them. They've put the disappointment of going out in the Libertadores behind them, weren't able to make it that elusive three in a row, which would have been absolutely ridiculous. But I think um, they've shown that they're not just a cup side and they can also do it um, over a consistent basis as well. And, you know, you've the, the sort of stability they've got there and 
is is just really impressive and, and not something that we're we're necessarily used to with Brazilian clubs or or most South American clubs for that matter. And you look at all the metrics, and you know they've they've scored more goals than anyone else. They've conceded, I think only what twenty one in thirty three games at the time of recording, which is you know a phenomenal um, record there. They're sharing the goals around their team. I think, you know, big old Gus Gomez at the back's got himself eight goals in the league as well. So, you know, they they, they know how it's done and, and they're going to be, you know, one of the favourites for, for next year. But, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to see other teams get up there and, and be competitive international, you know, had a very having a very good season, Flamengo and Corinthians just just behind as well, and um, and and Fluminense um, and Atlético Paranaense right up there. So a bit of a drop off for the likes of Mineiro, um, and you know Bragantino as well. You know we would have expected more from them, but um, yeah, Palmeiras all but got that wrapped up. Yeah, and, and Simon, we've obviously talked a lot about Palmeiras in discussing the Libertadores over the, over the past year or so. But um, I guess the worry for a, a lot of teams, not just in Brazil, but outside Brazil, is you look at that Palmeiras side, we've talked a lot about the established players. Tom just mentioned a couple of them. But they also have this, this new generation of young players that seem primed to break into the first team over the next year or so. So it doesn't look like Palmeiras are going anywhere anytime soon. No, their their youth side is, is incredible, um, and yeah, I mean the fact that you know there's teams at the top of the the Brazilian league who haven't mentioned for a, for a long time looking at continental football, um, something like Internacional is second place as well, and Palmeiras with their incredible academy and now their ability to to attract some top European players over, starting as well to to pick off one or two of the best players from around the continent, which again is something I think Brazilian teams can look to do. They can sign anyone they want pretty much if they get in there early enough. Um, so I think there's things are looking good for Brazil and there's scope for that to continue to improve. The youth development is always going to be incredible. Um, and they have, they have a, a strategy which other uh, clubs around South America don't have because they can get 40 million euros, dollars for a player, which is something that a Colombian team or an Ecuadorian team just can't do. And even in Argentina, it's slightly more challenging at times. So they definitely get the top top money for the players and they're starting to really invest that money well, bringing in established players to help them dominate continental competition. So it's it's impressive and I think it can only can only continue to improve. You also add in improved coaching, slightly better structure in some of the clubs. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> they're, they're doing things right, which is a bit scary for everybody else on the continent. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And Tom, it's looking a little bit tighter in terms of qualifications, the next year's Libertadores and, and the Sudamericana, the Brazilian League, and the, the amount of sp- spots available in those competitions mean that you can almost go within the last couple of weeks of the season from a relegation battle into the Sudamericana places. Um, but there's a lot of teams still floating around, some in danger, like Goianiense, who we've talked about in terms of their progression in continental competition and yet finding themselves in the relegation zone. Others that are at the moment clinging on to Sudamericana spots like Bragantino, like Santos. Um, and next season we'll have uh, at least one of the uh, traditional big boys back in the top flight. Cruzeiro, of course, coming back up. Yeah, exactly. It's um, it's it's going to be really good to have them back in after what certainly they'll see is far too long um, out of the out of the top flight. Um, you know, Gremio 
looking like they're they're going to be coming back up to Vasco in a in a good position as well. So you know immediately you've got some some big names looking like they're going to be back up there um, and and just making that really competitive division even more com- competitive and and it's it's been good to see as well you know not only you know some of the big names that have done well recently but some of the traditional sides that you know that, that don't always necessarily do as well like Fluminense uh, Cano has been absolutely fantastic um, for, for them um, along with you know some of the other older legends of the game like Hulk and uh, um, you know Gabigol Ronnie Pedro players that we've seen lots of in the Libertadores as well but there's there's always a chance for some surprises there with you know Pedro Raul being um, a striker who's who's done really well um, you know joint top scorer at the moment someone who you know, I don't think many people would have known too much about before, and um, and obviously Marcus Leonardo being another who's really caught the eye in terms of the, the striking options there. So always a really interesting league to, to watch, and and certainly you'd like to think that probably probably the the winner of next year's Libertadores is 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 likely to come from from that pool. Yeah, there's certainly uh, decent odds on that being the case. Um, yesterday, as we record as well, Argentina essentially wrapped up their league format. Uh, there's still some games to be played, but not with the, the, the title and relegation all, all but done. Uh, Simon, I don't know if you caught any of the action from Argentina yesterday afternoon, but really a, an extraordinary showdown involving four of the traditional big five in Argentina, rivals helping out each other indirectly and in the end Boca Juniors being crowned champion for a phenomenal way to end the league season yeah absolutely I'm sure Tom can tell me all about it Tom go ahead (laughs) (laughs) well you you know you missed out Simon if you weren't watching because we had Boca um, one point ahead of Racing going into the final game of the season Racing up against River Boca's traditional rivals and Boca against Independiente uh, Racing's traditional rival. So there was lots of talk in the media and among fans beforehand of, you know, are, are they going to th- throw the games to, to not help their, their rivals? But in the end, we were treated to a really, really good, uh, contest as, as Independiente held Boca to a two-all draw. Um, and Racing had the game in their hands as they were awarded a penalty in the, in the 90th minute when it was a uh, all square and, um, and then, yeah, not only did uh, Armani save the penalty and um, and dash Racing's dreams there, but then Miguel Borja, one of your favourites, I'm surprised you weren't watching for for him alone or Quintero, perhaps. Um, yeah, Borja getting getting a another another goal to to rub salt into the Racing wounds even even further. So yeah, really really in- incredible that it, we had such a good contest and not just two sides, you know, walking over teams that didn't really have much to play for. Um, an incredible drama. It's, I mean, it's not necessarily being the highest quality league, as I'm sure Peter will attest to as well, but um, a really, really enjoyable and and pulsating way to to end the season. And, and Boca, once again, as they've, they've seemed to somehow, uh, quite a bit over the last few years, coming out on top on, on the domestic scene. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think you would look at the league in general and probably question the quality in, in comparison, even with, with recent years. 
However, what you can't begrudge really is the way that Boca, when they needed to get results during this back end of the tournament, really found a way of just grinding those victories out. So many of them by one goal margins. Um, so often as well, turning to new heroes, Luca Langoni, the 19-year-old from the academy, unknown really before this season, thrown into the action when they had some injury problems. Dario Benedetto, the number, the main striker, facing some time out. Langoni then playing a lot more and, and suddenly providing the goals, which really, in the end, proved instrumental in them in when winning the league. Um, looking at that Boca side, Tom, um, they've obviously won the Copa de la Liga in the first half of the year. They've now followed it up with the league title. Next week, they play the semi-finals of the Copa Argentina. Um, despite a lot of people throughout the year talking about crisis and in inverted commas at Boca, questioning when they got rid of Sebastian Pataglia as manager and they turned to Uwe Barra and said that he was just going to be coming in for the end of the, for the rest of the year. And even that for some people was a bit of a, a siren to say, how long can we really give an interim coach? They could end up doing a domestic treble here, which would surely mean that Ibarra stays on for 2023. But how do you assess this Boca team with that in mind? It's tricky, isn't it? But I, I do feel like rather than them just, you know, taking maybe the the cheap and convenient option like they did with Battaglia, this team under Ibarra does feel a little bit different. I feel like it's it's got more of an identity. Obviously, the young players coming in and playing such a key role. Obviously, you mentioned Langoni, but you know, Alan Varela at the base of midfield has been excellent and he's just that enforcer that you, you know, that, that is perfect for the Boca tradition. They've always had a really solid defence. That's that's never really changed. And But they, they, I think they've just found finally found the right balance with uh, Romero coming in and, and certainly playing some, some really good football there. Paul Fernandez as well, someone who's just you know, at this level, a, a really invaluable player. And, and I think they've addressed some of the, the question marks that we've had and they've had the good fortune or the foresight to, to be able to incorporate these youngsters in. And, and you know, there's there's more to come, you know. So Ashos, who got injured earlier in the season, he's going to come back in and, and be a key player. Um, you know, we've got players like Barco as well, who, you know, long-term, you'd, you'd like to think he's going to be someone who's going to contribute to the first team as well. So I, th- I feel like the mood around Boca is is a bit different, whereas before they were getting success, but there was a bit of an asterisk ne- uh, next to it. Whereas it does feel like, you know, it's moving in the right direction for, for perhaps the first time in a while. And, and, you know, maybe we do have to give Riquelme a, a bit of credit as well, because you you look at, you know, since he's since he's taken the you know charge of things upstairs, they've won. I think five of the seven tournaments they've they've been in, or something along those lines, at least anyway. And and you, they seem to be getting those footballing decisions maybe a a, a little bit um, a little bit better. And perhaps the changing of the guard at River as well, you know, means that they they smell blood and they think, okay, right, well, this is a a monumental shift after an eternity in on Argentinian football standards of the Gajardo era, which has been the most successful in, in the club's history. Now Boca maybe think, you know what, maybe it's our time to, to get back on top, albeit 
given that they've been so successful domestically, you could you could argue that you know it's not like they were out of the the race, but certainly it's it seemed to be all about River for the last seven eight years, and and Bocker have been somewhat in their shadow, and it, and it does feel like they're maybe getting ready to to step out and and be the the dominant force in in Argentinian football again. Yes, just finally then on Argentina, you just touched on it there. Obviously, Marcelo Gallardo has already announced that he will this time finally be not renewing a contract. He's going to be leaving River. They finish a fairly disappointing campaign, it has to be said, even though they do win on the final day to hand Boca the title. The team they beat, Racing, you mentioned there, you mentioned earlier as well in terms of Racing maybe next year with their place in the Libertadores being one of the Argentinian clubs that maybe could argue that they'll be there or thereabouts or one of the best shouts to maybe compete with, with the Brazilian sides. But looking at those two as, as the, the two big sides who did get into the Libertadores, um, how do you look at them going into 23, given that River, obviously, as you said, they're going to have this shift that they've not had to deal with for the last eight years. They now have to replace Marcelo Gijardo. They have to make the improvements that can take them up a level where they've clearly been below getting back to the heights of the Libertadores. And for Racing, we're looking at a side that for much of this year played very, very well, but ultimately fell short in every single competition they played. So they're going to have to make the the mental adjustment, I guess, to the disappointment of this to, to go again in 2023. Do you still see them as, as two big challenges, both domestically and in the Libertadores? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think rather than River being the the pace setters and everyone else trying to keep up, it's now maybe three sides who are all of an equivalent level of quality when they're when they're playing their best. River, they've been less than the sum of their parts this year, and you think, you know what? If if some of those players who've been excellent at other clubs, um, you know, Aliendro. Pochettino in the past, you know, there's there's tons of players who could, if they find a bit of rhythm or the new coach comes in and and they get a bit of a second wind, suddenly River could you know could be an impressive unit again. Borca has done well since he's he's come in. Um, Solari looked like a, like a good signing. Certainly gave them a an impetus um, when they when he first joined. So I, I think there's enough in terms of the playing squad to say, you know what, we, we can be better maybe with a couple of reinforcements, you know, we could maybe try and take it to the le- next level. Obviously the loss of Alvarez and Enzo Fernandez, any, any uh, side is going to struggle losing them. So it's, there are certainly understandable reasons why River perhaps weren't at their best and, and, you know, obviously the Gajaro era has come to an end and, and it's a chance to, to go again. As for Racing, you know they've they've been very consistent in terms of their performances they've clearly got a coach who's promising and plays a good, nice brand of football i think the worry is there do they have a bit of a glass jaw when it comes to those key moments they've certainly in the first half of the year they should have done done better maybe you can excuse them a little bit in terms of they were all, always playing catch up but Again, there's it, it's hard not to say have Racing done a Racing and and mucked it up when it's you know that that key moment and does does Gargo's own injury records 
kind of play into that narrative of crumbling, you know, <laughs> in, in those moments, which again, maybe I'm being harsh. Maybe, I mean, I really like Gaga. I think he's a fantastic managerial prospect, but narrative can have a way of overtaking these things and not saying it feeds into one or the other, but it's certainly from a media point of view, there's, there's parallels that you can draw, but I think we, you know, we're looking at an improvement of uh, of these teams and and you know it's the the grandes are, are looking more consistent even you know san lorenzo <laughs> didn't have a terrible season and and you know independiente showing they can they can mix it with the best um when, when they when they have a chance so um yeah it's it, it's going to be interesting they've obviously got a long way to go to catch up with the brazilian sides but um you know there's they're always going to be probably the the main contenders outside of uh, outside of Brazil um, for for those continental tournaments. Yeah, we'll we'll have to see how they how they get on with this long break now before we resume domestic football in 2023. Um, Simon, we'll bring you back in now because uh, obviously, we, as we whip around the countries, we'll we'll head to your homeland, to Colombia, to to find out where we stand before the break there. Yeah, so you've you've come to me at a good a good a good moment, the most exciting moment in the Colombian league season for me, anyway. So basically, Colombia has twenty teams each year. There's two seasons, um, and the season also has a playoff. So the top eight teams um, after twenty games, so everyone plays each other, and then they play local rivals again because it's fun. Um, maybe not fair, but it's fun anyway. It's, it's secondary in Colombian football. It's definitely fun. So basically every team now has played 19 games apart from Medellinos and Medellin who are playing this week. Um, but basically this next weekend, um, we will decide the top eight teams who go through to the playoffs. Um, two groups of four, the winners go through to the final one off final, um, two legged final. But basically we're at the most exciting moment in the league because at the moment, there's one game to go and all of the games we played on Sunday and basically we need to decide the top eight. And from 13th all the way up to mathematically fourth, all of these teams could end up in the top eight and all these teams could potentially end up outside the top eight. So obviously some teams, America Cali up there in fourth. I mean, the top two teams in Colombia is Rio Negro Aguilas, which is a tiny team outside of Medellin um, who have done really well. Leonel Alvarez the great Leonel Alvarez, the mulleted maestro. Uh, he might remember from the 1994 World Cup. Yeah, he's still got the mullet. He's still got the mullet and the goatee. Looks like a telenovela villain, basically. Um, but he's he's uh, done amazing work there at Rio Negro Aglias. Their first, second place is Pasto. Again, massive surprise to see them so high up. But, you know, full credit. Then some more familiar names, but again, named teams who have been really poor in the first half of the season, have got themselves together, Santa Fe, America de Cali, who are looking pretty comfortable to make it into the top eight. Uh, and then it all gets very complicated. Once Caldas in fifth, again, having an improved season, Bucaramanga, the Millonarios, who've been in terrible form recently, have an excellent team. They were, you may remember, they were unlucky to be eliminated in the qualifying rounds of Libertadores, but had a, a decent looking side with Daniel Ruiz on one side and Gomez on the other, two players who have got some quite a lot of intention from European clubs, both 2021 Colombian national team training camp members at the moment. But Mijanarios have dropped off a cliff, as have the reigning 
Apertura champions, the champions of the first season, Nacional, who are down in eighth. Um, so it's all suddenly got very interesting and it's interesting amongst lots of big teams. So uh, going down, Once Caldas, Bucaramanga, Millonarios, Atletico uh, Nacional, Independiente de Medellín, Pereira, Junior, Unión Magdalena and La Equidad. Of all of those guys, basically five of them are going to get in. So if you ever watch a Colombian football game, is my big plug. I should be on commission. Um, this Sunday, tune in because it's like it's like the relegation, like the last day of the season with the relegation or the playoffs, that kind of thing. But everyone's playing each other at the same time. Suddenly the team in 12th has gone up to 7th and the team in 5th has dropped down to 11th. It's going to be crazy. Um, so yeah, basically almost all the games in the final weekend of the season will be played uh, over on Sunday. Um, and it's going to be interesting. You ask me who's, you know, if, who's looking good for the Libertadores. Well, I mean, the teams who are doing the best right now have never won a league title. So the playoff system means basically the first 20 games are completely irrelevant <laughs> from next week. Um, so I wouldn't suggest that the likes of Rio Negro Aguilas or Pasto or even Bucaramanga, although they do have more experience, would be amongst the favorites. Pereira, if they sneak in, they've been very good. But usually when it comes to the playoffs, and these are really, again, really high, high value games in the playoffs because it's two groups of four. You win six games, so it's home and away. Uh, so it's very, very, if you win a couple of games, you're looking good. You can struggle and fall behind. So it's going to be exciting. Um, the Colombian league is really set up to have these big, important, high profile games because when the team has got something to play for, the stadium's full. And when it doesn't, like nobody turns up. So uh, we've, the Colombian fans are used to this kind of structure and kind of play into it. So yeah, basically this Sunday is going to be very, very dramatic. So take a pick. Maybe tune in for Pereira against Bucaramanga. Why not? Both of those teams could <laughs> be qualified and can be eliminated. So they have something to play for. But yeah, basically get your screens out, your 16 <laughs> screens, get it all ready to go and switch from Rio Negro over here to Bucaramanga. Good fun. So obviously you said that... In, in essence, getting into the top eight is all that matters, but it does render those 20 games slightly pointless once you then go into a much more of a knockout feel. If you were to put your money on it now, you would still go with one of the more established big boys from Colombian football, or do you think this could be a year for a surprise? No, like the thing is, I've been here long enough to to, give, to lose to lose sight of the the magic. Uh, now, Colombian fans will have all kinds of conspiracy theories um, because, you know, you can imagine that the TV channels won't be delighted if Rio Negro Aguilas, who get about a thousand fans a week, are playing, well, say Envigado, it won't be Envigado this time, who get about a thousand players, fans a week. It's not going to be a very exciting, high profile final. So there's always these uh, rumors and speculation. Now, I don't believe any of that, in, of course, um, but there definitely is. Um, a sense that in the big games, the big teams rise up and the small teams shrink a little bit. Um, who knows? It, it, some, you know, surprises can happen. Once Carlos won the Copa Libertadores once upon a time, if we can remember that. Um, but I would definitely say, again, Mijanat, for me, the best team on paper is Mijanarios, but they've been a mess. So they really have to get things together in the next couple of weeks. If not, yeah, you know, Nacional is still there. Junior, if they sneak in, have the players. I mean, the three best squads for me are Mijanarios, Nacional, uh, Junior, um, I would say. America are much improved and they've got some good players. But those three teams on paper have the most valuable squads. But they're down in 8th, ninth, and 11th. There's a chance that none of them make it to the final. So again, the Sunday will be very important and then from there we can kind of 
take stock of where everyone is because the strongest teams are definitely not the informed teams right now in Colombia. Right. Well, there we go. Make sure you tune in on Sunday uh, to see the, the final day there in Colombia. Uh, Tom, I'll, I'll come to you under a degree of pressure as we're up against the clock. Um, <laughs> but I know with you, I, we're in capable hands to, to kind of give us a quick rundown of what's going on elsewhere as briefly as possible. <laughs> well, while Simon's watching the uh, watching the Colombian league, I'll be I'll be checking out the the you know the the exciting triple header in Paraguay as uh, Nacional, Olimpia, and Cerro Porteño are all in a three way battle for, for for the title. But no, no, uh, joke, jokes aside, um, you know it's it's getting. It's always pretty exciting at this at this point in the season. Some of the leagues have finished with um, Nacional in Uruguay winning the Clausura by by four points. Obviously, they then go into you know the head to head to see who's crowned overall champion. But you know, good to see Luis Suarez going back and getting a title there in in Uruguay. And there's been some really interesting players to keep an eye out. Thiago Borbas um, at River Plate, the Uruguayan one. He's he's a fantastic player, and he's stepped up after Matias Arreso left the club. So that he, you know, good storylines there in Chile. Colo Colo, well clear at the top of the table. Uh, I think 11 points ahead of Nublense. But again, you, you look at those sides who are sitting in second and third, Nublense and, and Curico, two sides that are you know not usually among the, the challenges in, in Chile. And, and it, really interesting to see them up there and, and challenging while the likes of Catolica and Lau are, you know, languishing much further back so you know there, there are there are some good storylines all over um south america alcas unbeaten in the ecuadorian um second round of the liga pro they'll go into a um championship final game against barcelona um so that that's going to be interesting um to see who who does well there because ecuador consistently produce sides that have challenged in the latter rounds of the continental tournaments obviously IDV winning another Sudamericana they just were edged by by Alcas there so you know there's there's increasing um depth in in the Ecuadorian league and then obviously you've always got the you know the madness of trying to work out what's going on in the Venezuelan league and Bolivia with the strongest uh, living up to their name, top of the league, with always ready and Bolivar fighting out for the Clausura as well. So all over stuff's going on, and you know, for the for the casual fan, if 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 you're looking to sort of get into a league, then you know now's a good time to to do it when there's plenty of drama and uh, the, the fans are going nuts. Yeah, every every game over the next two weeks or so really is going to be deciding something somewhere in the continent because everywhere is is basically wrapping up. Um, and that is obviously where we're heading as well to wrap up this episode because we are going to finish talking about the World Cup. It's now less than a month away. We're seeing teams begin to name their preliminary squads, very long preliminary squads in some cases, um, for more than 50 players. We're also seeing increasing stories of players picking up injuries for their clubs, which could well rule them out of the World Cup, given that it is so close now. Um, but Simon, we've seen at least Uruguay this week name a 55-man preliminary squad. I think Argentina sort of almost secretly have at least given their preliminary squad over to the Football Association, even if it wasn't made public in the same way that Uruguay did. Um, I don't think we're expecting too many major shocks from 
Brazil and Ecuador in who they name in their squads for the World Cup. But um, what are you looking at when we are finally going to get the names of the, the 26 from the four South American uh, nations going to Qatar? Yeah, I think we're right now we're at that point where South American fans are going to be flicking across all the channels in Europe to see if anyone's gone down injured. You know, that, that's the one thing that will really shake up squads and, you know, it will be terribly sad. You know, Messi, Neymar playing. If, if someone goes down injured, then that changes the whole narrative of the entire tournament. So uh, one thing will be avoiding injuries and keeping all the players fit making sure um, they're prepared for the tournament because it's going to be a quick turnaround from finishing up the European games or the the club games and then getting straight into the competition. But as you say, I don't think there'll be many massive changes. Obviously, the squad's uh, slightly increased uh, compared to previous years, so that gives a bit more flexibility as well. I mean, one thing will be to look out how many forwards are included, all that kind of stuff. You know, it always gives an interesting insight into that kind of thing. Um, and if any of these kind of, you know, for example, with Ecuador, we've seen them throwing in a lot of these young players for recent friendlies and having a look at players, um, whether their performances have forced any changes. But I think the changes mostly, as we say, will be around the fringes of the squad. Um, the squads are big. Um, they'll have their key 11, their key 15, 16, 17, 18 players. And then it's, you know, around that, do you want to go for the guys with experience or do you want to kind of mix it up and have some youth? Do you want to throw a Theo Walcott in there <laughs> in England style and, and just take a part on a 16-year-old? Those will be the interesting little decisions as we come towards the tournament. But but generally, you know, it will be a focus on the, the established players that we've seen. Yeah, I mean, Tom, I mean, we talk about the Brazil squad, we talk about depth. Um, we've spoken previously about those options that Gigi has there in naming a squad. One thing that seems fairly clear is that he will stay very loyal to the group that he's been using over the last couple of years, really. So that may mean disappointment for some of the players that are performing very well for their clubs in the Premier League, for example, which will, will no doubt lead to some uproar in England when the, when the squad is initially, uh, when it is eventually announced. Um, but who are you looking at when we start with Brazil then um, from that likely squad that will get named? Just kind of one to look out for in, in Qatar. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think the thing that I'm most intrigued to see is how all the Brazilian players manage to stay on the right wing um, and and uh, after their, you know, love for Bolsonaro, they're all going to be crowding around that right wing side of the uh, the pitch and, um, you know, maybe there's a chance for, for uh, opposition to attack the other, the other um, side of things. But no, uh, jo- jokes aside, I, I think um, it's... I think I'm going to be really looking forward to seeing the likes of Vinicius and Anthony um, take their amazing club form and that amazing promise and invention and magic that we kind of associate with the Brazil squad and, and take that to the national team because, okay, they're players that everyone knows right now, but the World Cup has a as a way of announcing you to an even bigger audience. Like we all knew James Rodriguez before, but he went, to another level, um, you know, in, in his breakthrough tournament. And I, I could see some of these Brazilian players do that. I, th- I think the the big question is who do they sort of take as the, as the sort of strikers? That is going to be really interesting. Gabriel Jesus, as you've, you've alluded to there, could be very unlucky to find himself out of the squad. And it, it's, it's going to be interesting to see if they think, well, Firmino, Richarlison, Rodrigo... Is that enough? Do we need more of a big centre forward option like Mateus Cunha or Pedro or or someone like that to, to come in? I, I I do think there are 
question marks about who are who are maybe going to fill in those maybe fourth center back and and backup fullback roles i think that's probably the the big question when it comes to brazil other than that i think the the team is pretty solid and and almost picks itself um certainly the first uh, first 11 and you know you can look at argentina and say a pretty similar thing i think the intrigue is going to come at come in with those two or three outside shouts that could could be the wild cards with these slightly increased squads but um yeah i, I think brazil has, has got you know maybe more open spots for people to sneak in than than argentina has but at the end of the day they they're both settled they're both confident. They're both going to be two of the favourites going in. So it's it's probably more Uruguay and Ecuador that that are going to be the the bigger points of debate, I suppose, in terms of the uh, the the final squad announcements. Yeah, Argentina, as you say, there looks pretty settled as well. The, the one player I think that probably has moved closer into that final squad is probably Enzo uh, Fernandez, given not just how he finished his career in South America with River, but certainly how he seamlessly moved into the Portuguese football with Benfica, performing at a really high standard and having made his international debut in those last round of friendlies and looking very good. I think he now is in a position where he will be in that final squad for Argentina. And he might be someone actually to keep an eye on at the actual tournament. Because I think in that midfield three for Argentina, Paredes and De Paul seem to be the two that you would absolutely nail on to be in that starting 11. But as the tournament goes on, if maybe they need to move a few things around, if there's been a, a knock or a suspension, then Fernandez and his versatility to play a number of different midfield roles could see him go into that lineup. And given how he just seems to be stepping up to each test that he gets throughout his career, I wouldn't be too surprised to see him um, impress at the World Cup and be one of those players, as you say, that we know of him, but it's a World Cup that could take him to that next level and spark a, a big money move and, and see him take that next level um, with a club team. Uh, Ecuador then, Simon, um, just briefly as we wrap things up, again, we're not expecting maybe too many shocks, but what are you looking from from their squad? Who are you kind of looking forward to seeing and maybe having that kind of World Cup that takes them into the next stage of their career? Yeah, I think there's quite a few contenders for Ecuador. Obviously, Moises Caicedo is the one who people will be keeping an eye on. I think he's a top, top player. One of the best players in the Premier League. I mean, we're not, not too far off saying that kind of thing already. Incredible. And he's been playing his best football at times for Ecuador. So him in midfield will be incredible to watch. And he could have that career-defining tournament that takes him, establishes himself amongst the very best uh, in that position. Incapié in defence, obviously... Uh, playing regularly in Germany, a very composed defender. He's had a couple of shaky games recently, but hopefully in familiar settings he'll be important. Uh, Gonzalo Plata on the, on the wing as well, I think really quick, really tricky. And then there's some players as well who have been doing very well and are well established in their leagues, but could see this as their chance to push on. So I would look at Jose Cifuentes, for example, who's been pretty much the best midfielder in MLS, 23 years old, can play anywhere in midfield as an eight, as a 10, has some incredible ball progression, chance creation numbers, also puts in a good shift. He could get himself to that move to England, lots of links over the summer. Uh, January could be the chance for that. And even someone like Bayron Castillo, you know, who's been doing well in Mexico, making a lot of headlines, you know, for things 
unfootball related, but um, he could get a move to Europe. So I think this Ecuador side has a lot of players who are either very, very young or perhaps slightly undervalued and still have a good upside. So uh, yeah, a really interesting kind of fluid uh, team. Um, this Ecuador side, lots of energy, lots of creativity, lots of hard work, and also a lot of tactical flexibility. We've seen them play so many different systems. Um, I think they'll definitely have a game plan specific for each opponent they face. Um, so it will be interesting to see how they shift the personnel around for each game and shift the system because they have players who can play multiple roles. Um, so yeah, I think it'll be a really, really interesting side to watch for the young talent they have, for the fluidity in their play and for their tactical changes. You know, we'll be surprised, I'm sure, each game when the, the squad list comes out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to also going to be fascinating, as you say, that the, the change in the, uh, the, the calendar this year and then having the January transfer window, which is ordinarily something which when people when teams are recruiting they're sometimes a little bit cautious around signing at that time of the year or, or knowing they're going to have to overspend that being the window that immediately comes after a world cup as well it will be interesting to see how that impacts transfer fees and, and moves um to europe or around europe um finally uh tom with uruguay we, we did get that very long list we got a lot of names on there that we're very certain won't be going to the world cup but nonetheless are on that preliminary list um, but what are you looking for for the most likely kind of 26 and players that may be from that preliminary list you're looking at saying, you know what, I, I think he may actually manage to make the 26 and, and maybe someone to look out for at the World Cup. Yeah, I think the fact they announced such a long list shows just how much doubt there is about who exactly is definitely going to be on the plane. You know, Alonso's come in and sort of made it sort of almost a hallmark that he's going to give everyone a go and the doors open for everyone to to try and get in but I think that also breeds I mean out of all the 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 nations from South America who are going to the World Cup Uruguay the one that I'm probably least sure about how they're going to line up because okay the midfield is probably set in stone Valverde incredible player taking it to another level this season Bentancur, then the likes of Vecino, Torreira, you know, these are all guys, De La Cruz, De Raqueta, you know, we know that that's basically going to be the the, the midfield setup. Um, although I do think Manuel Ugarte is someone I've, I've mentioned a lot on these podcasts before. I really think that he's someone who could come in and, and, and do a job, you know, if an inevitable suspension comes in for a defensive midfielder, then Ugarte is going to be the one to step up. And he's someone who I think could, could get a big money move off the back of this World Cup if he gets the game time. But my, my doubts are more about the, the strike force and the defence because, okay, we all know Suarez, Cavani, Nunez, um, there's clearly, they're clearly going to go to the World Cup and they're going to be the main guys. But are they a little bit sort of trying to get the most out of guys who have maybe just passed it and maybe the guys coming through aren't quite ready to assume the mantle of being the next Suarez and Cavani? Um, that's going to be really interesting. Nunez's club form, how much is that going to affect him going into it? Um, usually it's a case that when it comes to Uruguay, they can put that to one side and fully fo- uh, fully focus on, on the national team. So that's probably going to be fine. Perhaps someone like Satriano, a bit of a you know left field shout, but someone who's extremely highly rated in Uruguay, he could maybe be someone who comes off the bench and, and makes a bit more of a name for himself. And then in defense, you've kind of, with Ronald Araujo out injured, 
it's it's a real question of who do you partner with Jimenez? Is Godin past it? Is Coates good enough? Um, certainly good enough for this podcast, but you know, is he is he a level where um, brother Sebastian can can do it at the top level? Even though he's been doing well for Sporting, um, and you know, is it too soon for the likes of Mendes, Rogel, Cáceres? Um, the, the the younger the younger one not not uh, Martin who's who's still hanging around as well so yeah I think there's a lot of question marks of like have have we maybe not transitioned into the some of the younger talent in time for for them to be fully ready and and are we going to have to have this kind of slightly awkward mix of youth and experience that maybe hasn't quite found its its balance just yet but um there's there's certainly quality and excitement and experience thrown in there which you know at the end of the day throw uh, a bunch of players who, who know what what they're doing with those sprinkling of exciting talents and and uruguay if it all goes well could you know could could have a, a bit of an under radar good tournament yeah there's certainly the side which is a lot more difficult to predict given we're seeing the other three far much further down the line in terms of where they've progressed under manager and, and Uruguay making that late change in qualification to, to push themselves through the door and still playing catch up in that regard. Um, so there we have it. World Cup just around the corner. Copa Libertadores final this week. We hope you we got through it enough there in an hour uh, to satisfy and we'll be back at some point, I'm assuming, uh, next month, whether that's middle of the World Cup or after the World Cup. We'll have to, we'll have to wait and see, work out what we're going to do. But um, Simon, I know you're off to Qatar next week, so maybe we'll have you on site doing something. Uh, but enjoy the trip and, and thank you for this afternoon. No, absolutely, yeah. I'm, I'm sure there'll be plenty of uh, pinnacle content in, around the World Cup. I'm going to be involved in some bits and pieces. So looking forward to speaking to you guys about the South American teams and I'm sure there'll be some uh, full coverage on the pinnacle across the platforms on all kinds of World Cup related stuff. So yeah, hopefully I can uh, give some added insight over there in Qatar and we'll, we'll see how everything goes. No doubt. Um, and Tom, like me, you're going to be uh, sitting back largely and enjoying the spectacle. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to catch up and, and talk a bit more about Argentina at some point. Um, but thanks as ever uh, for your insight today. My pleasure. I've, I've already got my Argentina bucket hat in the post and um, I'm looking forward to soaking up the pre-tournament vibes um, in Argentina um, before getting back to um, to, to soak it all up um, from from this end of the, uh, the the Atlantic as well. So it's uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be good, and uh, looking forward to see how our um, pre-tournament predictions pan out as well. Excellent. Well, um, as always, you can find the latest odds and the betting insight on Pinnacle.com, plus plenty of content on the Twitter, which is at Pinnacle, and the Instagram Pinnacle.betting. Um, plenty of other sports as well, but any of the uh, odds that we did mention during this episode were correct at the time of recording so please do go and check that out and of course gamble responsibly I hope you enjoyed today's episode and we'll be back next month with another South American Soccer Insights